You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. There are no topics more interesting than death, sex, and money. And there are no topics more radioactive and actual conversation. That's why Anna Sale created a podcast that always goes there. It's called Appropriately Enough, Death, Sex, and Money. It's all about uncomfortable conversations. And if you're listening to this podcast, you really should listen to that podcast. Her book... Let's Talk About Hard Things, adds family and identity to the mix. The book is part memoir, part instruction manual, and part a meditation on these topics. There aren't a lot of easy answers to any of the questions that they raise. One constant, and we'll be talking about this a lot, is making the decision to focus on the relationship between people rather than what we think is right or wrong. You'd be surprised how many hard conversations get easier by asking, what do you need from me? Anna Sale, the host of Death, Sex, and Money, coming right up. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you have a podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. Mm -hmm. You've written a book sort of exploring those topics and a couple others. But I actually, my the very first thing I wanted to ask you is which of those topics is hardest for you? Right now, it is money. And it's been money most of my life. But I want to put a little asterisk that I'm sure it will change (laughs) depending (laughs) on what happens in my life. Um, Yeah, money for me is... uh, Money for me, and like a lot of people I've noticed, like it's, it's hard because you I, figuring out even the vocabulary to use is hard because I, I don't there's not a very robust public vocabulary for everything from making decisions about what to do in a money kind of dilemma question how do I spend this money what should I do what do I do if I don't have enough and then also I have not historically and I'm trying to become more aware like really had a language for explaining all of the really intense feelings I have about money um, and stability and survival. And, you know, basically for me, all of my, if I'm going to be anxious, usually it stops first at money um, because that's the place I go. (laughs) That's funny. I had so much trouble reading the money chapter. (laughs) 
was the, was the hardest one for me. And I want to talk about it more, but we probably should talk about your book. Make sure we, we talk about the book. So let's mm-hmm. talk about hard things. It's kind of, it's yeah. not, it's not the podcast. It's more yeah. than the podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what it's not? Cause you have some really specific things that it's not. Yeah. I mean, when I was figuring out, I was like, huh, I want to write a book about talking about hard things, but I don't want to have any bullet points in it, (laughs) which um, were like, you know, sort of like go-to scripts, which you find in, you know, a lot of really helpful books, whether they are in the business section or whether they're in the self-help section or even sort of like, you know, the kind of gift card, the gift, gift book section where it's like a little book and it has little scripts for how to write a sympathy card or something. Um, I didn't want it to be that. I also wanted to be clear that like, for me, when I talk about having a hard conversation, it's a, it's a relational experience. It is being respectful of the person you are speaking with and doing your best to honor their dignity. So I say in the intro, it's also not a, um, it's not like a manifesto for radical honesty. I'm not for like everybody just saying the thing that's been unsaid without regard to the harm that that may cause. Um, This is a book more about really like there's a set of challenging, hard things in our lives that all of us will run into in one way or the other, where we can feel stuck, ashamed, isolated, stigmatized when we run into them. And it's sort of a call to say, instead of waiting until you can talk about it in the past tense and a presentation of what you have figured out on your own, that when you choose instead to sort of go to someone in your life and say, I need to tell you something that's going on with me that I'm not sure you understand. Or there's something that like, I just, I'm curious, like I'm noticing this, like, can we talk about this about you? Like what's going on? Um, And then to see what happens. And because I argue like that actually is a very, it's a generative process. You, you create more support and company and honesty and, love even when you do that than when you hold back another way it's not like the podcast is that you've added a couple categories mm-hmm. to to the hard things that we talk about and the list should probably be longer than five even I think. yeah <laughs> if you, there's there's probably an exhaustive list somewhere but we'll keep it to the five that you that you explored yeah. you added family and identity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. When did you realize that that those were going to have to be categories that you included? I actually started with a bigger list and then <laughs> edited. You know, I think what it was like miss? 15. I'm curious. What did we miss? Yeah. Well, I had like a whole work chapter. I had a friendship chapter. I had um, mental illness, addiction. I had just kind of like big categories. Um, and then I was like, well maybe we can pair back and in thinking about maybe we can, maybe I ought to, <laughs> maybe I ought to pair back. Um, and death, sex and money, you know, they are big things that all of us, um, all of us run into in a variety of ways. 
I think family and identity really also have that sort of like universal, but very specific and particular way of confounding us. Um, and I wanted to give a special look to both of those family, because I feel like um, it's, it, it's interesting to me that it's a, it, it is a hard thing. The relationships in our family, like, even if you have the most functional, healthy, communicative family, those relationships will change just with the passage of time. And that can cause things that you need to talk about. Um, uh, and it's a setting in which you have those conversations. So it's not just talking about family, it's talking within families. And then I wanted to add identity because mostly I was just like, if I'm, uh, if I'm writing, if I'm, if I'm really offering this book up to the world as, as something that's acknowledging what's hard and can cause people to feel paralyzed around, uh, it would be a huge dodge if I left out identity because I find as a white woman, like that is where uh, I have that feeling the, the quickest is like, uh, am I out, like out of my depth? How do I, what are the words? How do I do, you know? So I wanted to have a special look at that. Um, as well. And I found interestingly, you know, we just talked about money, like as I was working on the money chapter and the identity chapter, there's a lot of similarities in those chapters because um, in both money and an identity, what can become so tricky is you're talking around, you're going to run into difference. You're going to run into ways that you can't um, intuit the experience of someone else and a conversation is not going to change those differences. Like, so the opportunity in the conversation is like, how do we acknowledge like, Oh, my grandma gave me a bunch of money and that's why I have this house. And I realized you're saddled with student loans. And I probably, probably like, like as we are, as we get older and you can see how my life looks different than your life. And we don't talk about money, like that that's caused tension within us. You know, that's an example of money and then identity how you are oriented towards the question of like which spaces you feel belonging in and which you don't um, really affect the way you move through the world. And those are not differences you can sort of just um, with good intentions come to understand one another completely. As a recovering Marxist, like there's a temptation <laughs> for me to just be like, well, the reason money is so hard to talk about is because it's the biggest structure. It's like capitalism is the structure we all live in and yeah. it causes all the other inequalities. Anyway, yeah. I won't go there. Well, I, and that's another reason the money <laughs> chapter was so hard. I was like, what am I even talking about? Like, am I going to write a critique of our entire economic system? And is that what I'm saying people need to talk about? Cause like kind of, but also you have to decide how to talk about whether you want to buy a rug with your partner, <laughs> you know, there's like so many things. <laughs> it, it is. So, I mean, I still believe like it is this enormous structural system that, that creates a lot of and exacerbates the, the other inequalities that we have to talk about. Right. Um, I also believe that money is a collective delusion <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. as is debt. These things do yeah. not exist in the real world. We have to create them and make them exist. They only exist because we agree upon them. And when I was struggling with the money chapter, I was like, is that it? Is that why I'm having so much trouble with this chapter is because I think it's an imaginary category. And then I realized, well, all these other categories are kind of imaginary too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like that something can be totally made up and also incredibly consequential in the effects on our lives. Like, hello, racism. Like, 
made up system yeah has real effects you know yeah and in fact like maybe maybe there's some ways that that, that that talking about money helps us talk about those other things too right like especially if we really have to get into inequalities when it comes to money if we start to try and do that around money then maybe we get better at talking about identity right because mm-hmm. we become more comfortable mm-hmm. talking about inequalities in general and i was really fascinated about the ways that the categories you talked about talk to each other and the pieces mm-hmm. of advice. Sorry, I shouldn't say advice. No, it's advice. <laughs> there are useful. I hope that there's a lot of useful prompts in the book. Prompts, like that I was think is actually a better. Yeah. Let's say let's yeah. say prompts because I don't want to hang advice on you, right? Uh, <laughs> but you you do have some useful prompts for for all the categories. There are some questions that you offer and some statements that are ways into these conversations. And I started to think about what, which of those you could use on which, you know, like, could you Mm -hmm, pick up mm -hmm. cut and paste? And the one that I kept coming back to as like the er question is, what are you into? Oh, that's good. (laughs) Oh my God. So talk about that. And then maybe we can, maybe we could try and play a little game of like applying that to all the other categories. Okay. I really love that. I mean, um, what are you into is the context in which it comes up is um, from its history of being in, of, in gay cruising culture, you know, kind of someone sidles up to you and says, what are you into? And then there's, you know, it's kind of an opening to say, like, are we going to do this? You know, and it came up um, in in the sex chapter. I was interviewing a, a guy named Ty Mitchell, who's a writer and a porn performer and a sex worker um, who's a gay man. And he, he sort of brought up that question. I wanted to talk with him about like, how do you talk about sex in all these various contexts? And what have you found comes up in each, like when you're at a job and you're performing for a client who's paying for you, paying you like versus with your long-term partner, um, whom he's not monogamous with, like, how do you talk about what you're going to do? Um, and he just was like, he, he, he basically was like, look, all sex is a transaction. And like, that sounds really, um, sort of curt and unromantic. Uh, but like, think about every sexual interaction. Sometimes I'm getting pleasure out of it. Sometimes I'm getting pleasure and money out of it. Sometimes I'm getting a sense of safety and security when I'm with my boyfriend. Um, and that the person you're having sex with may be getting the same thing, but might not be. But if you're agreeing to what the terms are and it's consensual, like that's okay. Um, and so I really liked like, oh, like, what are you into? Like, what are you up for? Like, it's just such a nice question about like, hmm, what's your pleasure? You know, that like, it, it feels really open and non-judgy and also curious about your partner. And also um, within that question, uh, is the idea that you might hear an answer back that is different than what you want, which is what I talk about. The, the stakes in a sex conversation are there because in any conversation about romantic entanglement or physical intimacy, there is that risk of like, oh, am I going to get rejected or have to reject? Like you're, tr- you're trying to work out, are we in agreement here to do this? Um, so I feel like that, what are you into? It's just such a wait, great opening into all of those things. And, and in that chapter, I think it's, 
you explore a little bit that that question does open up a lot of other things, right? Like if you can, if you think of it as what are you into, it is such an open invitation. That's, that's, is what I love about it. Right. And that it's also about consent, you know, Mm -hmm. and about expectations and it's not assuming a set of expectations at all. Right. So I think in some ways, like you could go into a relationship, even if it's not about sex, right. And ask like, so what are you into? Which you may mm-hmm. you change the words. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe if you're just starting a relationship, it's more like, so what do you want from this relationship? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, mm-hmm. and though that way of opening up a conversation, that open-endedness to me is the, one of the themes that's in the book, right? Like, that's why I think what are you into is sort of a joke as, as <laughs> maybe applied to money. <laughs> But at the same time, like one of the clearest messages I got from you was to go into these conversations as an invitation uh-huh. and as a request for more information, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I really love that. I mean, think about what you could learn. Like, I mean, if I, you know, I write about how money in my marriage is something that we're like, you know, we have, we're mulling over all the time because we have different kind of assumptions about what we want to do, you know, just like what we're comfortable with in terms of spending, because I don't like to spend money, which can be complicated when you have to spend money. And like, what are you into? It's such an interesting way of being like, oh, you like, you like a nice car. Interesting. That's different than me. I like shoveling money into savings accounts (laughs) and still pretending like I'm not safe. You know. Like, yeah, right. I, it works. It totally works. Like, what are you into when you play, when it applies to money? Like, well, I want to be rich. You yeah. know, that's, that is what I want out of money. Right. Yeah. Uh, even the answer, like, I want to travel is different than I want to be rich. Right. Like, yeah. what do you want to do mm-hmm. with your money? What are you into with your money? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just love that as starting almost again, almost any conversation family. Let's, t- let's think about it. I think you could still do it with family. <laughs> Okay, give me an example at the Thanksgiving table. Who are you? Who would you ask that well, question to? <laughs> I think it can't be. What are you into? <laughs> Although starting there, who knows, right? Especially as like the our olders, our our elders are now like um, boomers who supposedly you know went through a period of letting it all hang out. Kind of like yeah. hearing what grandma thinks of sex might be kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um. But I think there, it has to be the translation has to be some kind of idea about expectations, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think the exact way you might phrase it. This is, this is a fun puzzle. Um, I think, what do you, what do you want? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. What, what do you want from me mm-hmm. in this relationship? Mm-hmm. And I like that, that, you know, that, that's the, one of the big things in the family chapter is like, I think where we get so hung up and hooked in family conversations is it can be so hard to just admit that you are, your relationship has changed, mm-hmm. you know, even though obviously children who were once children become grown adults and have to sort of figure out what is their relationship to their grown, to their aging parents. Like obviously there's change, but just saying it out loud can be a little bit like, Oh, am I, is, am I signaling something about some problem or instead of just admitting that's how family works, mm-hmm. you know, that we are continually sort of renegotiating our relationships to one another and what we need from each other. Um, 
as we as time passes. And I'm going to attempt to borrow from the sex chapter one more time with this. With the, okay, what are you okay, into? Good. Because I think within the context, especially, I think you're right in in gay culture, asking that question. From what I know, you don't just ask it once. Yeah, you know, you keep asking it of the same person because you understand tonight it might be one thing, tomorrow night it might be another thing, right? And in families, we mm-hmm. also have to keep asking those questions. What do you What do you need from me? You know, am I giving you what you need? Because yeah. those things change all the mm-hmm. time, right? Yeah. What do you need from me? And what do I need from you? Like, yeah, it's interesting. So much of that goes unspoken. Like as someone who's like become a parent in the context of a my own family of origin, like what I expected each of my family members to do to help support me as I became a parent was like very emotional. I knew it but I didn't say it to anybody. (laughs) So then when they don't meet your expectations, you're like, Hey, I wanted you to love me in this way or show up for me in this way. And they're like, Oh, well, I was trying to do this other, you know, way of showing up for you or supporting you or giving you space or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, That's interesting. I also like the way that that way of thinking about a relationship or a conversation just shorthanded is what are you into uh, keeps us in the present. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because while it's important to talk about the past and all of the cases, all of the categories that you're talking about, it's also too important to kind of have it be the past. Yeah. You know, and that you, so you can ask of someone, I needed you, what do you want from me? Well, what I need you from now is X, Y, Z. Right. Mm-hmm. And I also need you to, in this moment, acknowledge that what I needed from you, I didn't get. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. Yeah. I really like that because it, it le- allows you to, um, when you're thinking about what is the conversation, what is the intent of a conversation? It's like, am I going in to want to tangle with them, like relitigate in a family context, for example, something that happened years ago, or am I going into it wanting them to know something that happened to me or some way I experienced something for them to understand for us to have, because it affects our relationship now, you know, that's a very interesting, I like how you say that. I think of it that way too. Yeah. Speaking of money, please consider frequenting our valuable sponsors. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. I have a hard time not having dessert. Even though I know sugar keeps me up, I crave something sweet right before bed, and Magic Spoon is my solution. First of all, I can just have some. It has zero grams of sugar. Second of all, I can just kind of tell myself, get to sleep, Anna, you'll have dessert for breakfast. Magic Spoon cereals have zero grams of sugar, only 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 calories. They're keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can build your own box or get a variety pack with available flavors like cocoa, fruited, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. I am a big advocate of mixing the flavors, especially cocoa and peanut butter, but please... Also try cinnamon and cocoa. Also try fruity and frosted. They all work pretty well together. If you do fruity and peanut butter, that's a PB&J. 
Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab your delicious variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZocDoc. It's hard to find a good doctor, and sometimes it's hard to find any doctor. And, you know, actually calling places to get an appointment, telling a stranger why you need to see a doctor? Well, luckily, there's ZocDoc. Just download the free ZocDoc app, the easiest way to find a great doctor, and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment in person or video chat. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, a dentist, a dermatologist, a psychiatrist, an eye doctor, or another specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. Go to ZocDoc.com friends and download the ZocDoc app to sign in for free. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com doc.com slash friends and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash friends. Doors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm so curious about this translation, right, of the of the podcast into a book. And I wondered as I was reading, you have these two new categories. Did you learn more exploring those new categories? Did you did you feel like or or did you at least feel like you had the other ones like kind of knew what you wanted to say and then with the others you maybe didn't I, know? Um maybe I can see why but no because I feel like when you're an interviewer and that's the work you're doing you know so much of my work on the show has been um just trying to pull out people's stories and narratives and internal monologues of how they've thought about moments in their life um, and things that have happened to them. And I never, I didn't have to, I never, like I, and I like to sort of leave it there. Like that's the episode. I don't do sort of like, and thus, did you hear what the lesson of this podcast episode was, you know? So because I've never forced myself to say like, Oh, Anna, what did you hear in that episode and why, why really did you think that was so interesting? And how does that build on this like idea of, you know, this framework for how you think we ought to talk about money, for example, like I had never forced myself to do that work. And that was really 
hard. It was new thinking for me. It required new reading and new sort of, wait, what do I believe? And where is my line of, you know, we want to hear what everybody has to say. And where's my line of like, no, but, you know, principles require this kind of line. So it was all, it was new in that way. Um, And I feel like family and identity have so much been a part of the interviews on death, sex, and money, just not like named in the title of the show, but like they just come up. They're just in part of the dialogue about anything um, that comes up, really. I think you touched on another question I have, which is I wanted to know if you had any surprises as you were writing this book. Things you didn't think would happen or things you didn't think you'd learn. I mean, I had a lot of surprises. I had never written a book before and I was surprised how hard it was. (laughs) Um, And I was surprised how hard it was of just like, uh, because it was like, what do I want? What, what are you doing, Anna? Like, what is this work? You know, and, and to be, to have been making this show since 2014 and feel like it has a pretty clear style and voice and implied mission statement and even sometimes explicit like it was surprising to me that I still was like well why why should we have these kinds of hard conversations and what what is the quality of the conversation that I'm arguing for so that was surprising and and useful it was I feel so much clearer about the intention behind my work um, because I just hadn't stopped to write it down and then I was surprised um I was also surprised, you know, this book is a combination of reported interviews with people who I sort of found and picked because they had gone through interesting moments. And then it's also memoir parts. And um, that was surprising. One cool thing about that whole process was like, I made the choice that for people in my life who I wrote about, I was going to share the pages with them as I wrote it and let them know and interview them and... Um, and those conversations about things that I thought were like fixed facts in my personal history. And then you share pages with, you know, your sister or your ex-husband. And then you're like, oh, (laughs) that's my version, you know, (laughs) um, that was nice and surprising and clarifying. It just that reminder of like, oh, that's, I'm moving through the world with my Anna Sale sort of view on things. And there's certainly lots of other ways to have experienced things and thought about things. The only category we haven't touched on is death. Mm -hmm. So what was that like in terms of, uh, I'm I'm curious about how exploring that topic might've been different than other topics because there is these other things that we, that you talk about, there is a lot of structural inequality built in, right? But is a loss a loss a loss, you know? Yeah. I think yes, but also no. Um, I mean, I did, I found it the least, um, it's, I, it was just, it was, that chapter was the least hard to find the people and figure out the arguments that I wanted to make because once you say I'm writing a chapter about death and why we avoid conversations about death, it's pretty clear why that is. <laughs> and that's because we don't like to look directly at our own immortality and talking about people you've lost, figuring out how to put words to that. 
is painful. You're describing pain and an unfixable pain, you know, Mm -hmm. pain that you can get used to, but it's not a fixable thing. Um, So I think that like, it's a, it is an equalizer in the way that death, the fact of death and what it means, someone was here and now they're gone. That happens no matter who you are. Of course, we die in different ways. So I said something about how maybe the inequality isn't built in to, to death, but I now have to remind myself that one of the main characters or sources in that chapter is Alicia Garza, who's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. So there is definitely some structural inequality built in there about how death works for different people. Yeah. I mean, not just like, was this person murdered by police? Like, I wanted to include that for a lot of reasons. One was I wanted to know from Alicia Garza, like what is the language that she has chosen? Like, how did she come to the words that she uses to describe death in different contexts? And, and she talks about, in a really beautiful way, she describes like the euphemisms that we use for death are not unlike the euphemisms that we use when we're afraid to like say something is racist out loud. Like we're covering up, we're, we're, we're papering over some very essential factors. Um, I also wanted to know for her, um, when your work is pointing out how people die unjust deaths, like how, how does she talk about that and how does she witness that in her own life? You know, like, does that mean that to look at the fact of how someone died, you must watch the video, you know, of a graphic Mm. death of someone at the hands of police, the state, like, is is that, are you called to do that? And she has said, she said, I don't watch the videos anymore. I have to choose. I have to choose Mm. what I expose myself to. And she also told me this really beautiful story, not, not about an unjust death, but a sudden death when a friend of hers from college, um, died in a car accident suddenly. And it, it wasn't about her political work. It was more about how she works as a human that I just liked knowing and in hearing, you know, she was, she was a friend who she got the first call that this friend, Joy De La Cruz, who was a poet, had, had died in a car accident. And then Alicia became the person who had to tell all the other people who knew her. And she opened up her home in Oakland and they had this gathering, memorial gathering, with people who had known her and then people just stayed for a week. And then it became this like annual thing that they gathered in recognition of their friend, but also in recognition of kind of the way that grief kind of sticks with, it's with something they shared. Um, And she described how people fell in love and people like relationships started because of those, that those annual get togethers. And I, I thought that was pretty beautiful. As we're talking about it, I'm thinking of the ways that death is like the other categories. Uh-huh. Um, and one of those things is that a loss is a loss is a loss. And what the problem is, is that we don't always recognize all these losses as being the same amount of weight for people. We don't always give credit. Black people dying at the hands of police, you know, like there's not always the same amount of um grief that's recognized by other people, not the people in that immediate family, right? But like some lives are worth more than others, basically. 
And we don't always acknowledge that as a culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the equipment to, to deal with death, the, the resources we have to deal with death is not distributed equally. Yeah, or to evade death for as long as we can, if you want to talk about the healthcare yeah. system. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then what COVID has done, you, you, you talk a little bit about COVID in that chapter and the unequal distribution of, of the illness and the, and the deaths. Um, to switch tone entirely, now I have to apply the what are you into question. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually good. Okay, I have a good answer to this. I can do it. All right, death. Okay, I can do it. What are you into? Death. Well, I I think that this is actually really um, it is a question, some variation that is not that is useful um, and something I, I thought a lot about because one of the pe- one of the stories I wanted to tell in the chapter was um, you know it can be so hard to figure out when someone is declining either from illness or age that when you're in that space of do I, do I acknowledge that I see this and open up a conversation about it? Or is that, um, will that be embarrassing to this person I love? And so you get, it can get into these places, you know, Katie Couric talked on death, sex and money about like the final, you know, the last period with her first husband as he was dying of cancer and how she looks back and sees it as a period of a lot of dishonesty because, she saw her role as being his cheerleader while he was going through cancer treatment. And if you are a cheerleader and trying to keep someone strong, you don't acknowledge that they might not get better. And she didn't have the opportunity before he died to acknowledge what was happening um, because of that. Um, And I interviewed a really dear friend of mine who's in her eighties, who I had that kind of just like, it was like annoying to me and also cliche of just like that, that um, sort of like uh, anxious um, energy. Every time we would spend time together, I would go home and I would be like, Oh, I can't believe she's in her mid eighties. How much time do I have with her? You know? And it, and it was all unspoken. And so I just called her up and said like, can we talk about what it's like to be in your mid eighties and how you're thinking about it? And she had been sick for a bit thought she was going to die, had read a book that she told me about, like really, I, um, and, and I think that, that I learned kind of the, what are you into from her? Like she described in her own life, like when she wanted to kind of show up for people who were aging, she described it as like, you know, you, you walk past them and you just offer your arm. They might not take it. And then you, if they don't take it. You don't force it. You know, but if they, they might just grab it, if they want to just hold your arm while they're walking, if they become a little frail and you do it in a way that respects their dignity, you know, Mm -hmm. offer your arm and kind of wordlessly. And I, I like that. And, and I think you sort of, it's a lot of reading cues, you know, it's a lot of, uh, I talked to a doctor, Fernando Maldonado, and he talked about trying to talk to all of his patients about end of life care. And he works with a community of patients where it's not like, it's just not an open conversation. But if they say anything about death, he sees the opening and he goes, well, let's talk mm-hmm. about that, you know? So sort of waiting for those cues because um, it's delicate. It's not easy. But kind of that's how I think of what are you into? Like just listening 
somebody complains about their back pain, ask, oh, what are you noticing? Is it, you know, how's that affecting life for you? You know, that kind of thing. Now, buying things will not solve your communications problems, but buying things can solve other problems. And our sponsors are here to help. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Here's a complicated one for me. Other people's unhappiness interferes with my happiness. And it shouldn't, but it does because I'm deeply codependent. And that is one of the main reasons I see a therapist. What would you want to talk to a therapist about? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment and begin communicating in under 24 hours. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions or just send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get a prompt and thoughtful response, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is facilitated to making great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, though financial aid is available. You can find licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma, the kind of expertise that might not be available in your area. So many people have been using BetterHelp. They're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And you can check out the testimonials posted daily to their site. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Credit Karma. Starting something new can be nerve-wracking. Wouldn't you like to know beforehand whether it was going to work out or not? Credit Karma can give you more confidence before you make a decision. Credit Karma's game-changing technology shows you tailored offers for credit cards and personal loans that you're more likely to be approved for so you can apply with more confidence. They use your credit and other financial information to show you custom recommendations. Whether you want cash back, travel rewards, or to consolidate debt, Credit Karma can help you find the offers that fit your goals. With a selection of options and approval odds, you have the power to make informed decisions. Credit Karma. Apply with confidence. Go to creditkarma.com slash podcast to learn more and find offers tailored just for you. That's creditkarma.com slash podcast, or you can see your offers on the Credit Karma app. It is the attitude of what are you into that I really love, of course, as applicable to all these other things, not the exact phrase, although it is so tempting. lead people really astray. (laughs) But cancer what, treatment. What are you into? What are you yeah. into? Um, what I, th- what I think that's in that question, in the spirit of that question, besides um, curiosity and openness, is you're centering the other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're saying in one question, I I want to do something for you. You know, and I think that's where it, you you get to in in terms of talking about end of life with someone else who might be facing it. What can I do for you? Mm -hmm. You know, and being ready to take the answer, like nothing, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. So, and one more question about death, which is, um, did it 
did doing the research on this chapter cause you to maybe make a will or plan your funeral? Did you think about your own death more concretely? You know, uh, I, ha- I this I, I it's hard to separate the two because I was working on this book while I was I had one baby when I started and I had two babies when I finished. And so like becoming a parent has been the thing that's like, oh, I got to like acknowledge that this is happening, could happen. <laughs> so I did in fact get my will finally done while I was while I was working on this book. I haven't programmed my funeral. That would that would be an interesting exercise, but I haven't gotten that far. And I still, talking about identity, I still kind of with COVID, um, I'm, I'm someone who d- lives far away from where I grew up in a place where I think of as home. I grew up in West Virginia. And so something that I've like perennially returned to as an adult is like, where would my body go if I dropped dead today? You know, mm-hmm. like, would it go back to the hometown funeral home? Probably not because my family's not there anymore, but where else would it go? Mm-hmm. You know, which is just an interesting thought exercise about where you feel rooted. Speaking of thought exercises, we have to go one more round on what are you into, (laughs) (laughs) which is identity. Uh Now, I think I have an answer on this one. All right. You Uh, want me to go? Okay. I'm curious. I'm curious. (laughs) It's just the, it's the curiosity and the centering of the other person, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Uh that's the, what are you, whatever version of what are you into that applies to identity is saying what, again, sort of what can I do for you? What do you need right now? What do you want from me? It's it's the same kind of question and that we adapted for the other categories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it what seems really, really important, and I think this is a message that you send throughout the book, is that centering of the other person to start at least. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's not like verboten to talk about yourself in these hard conversations, but I think opening them, you can't be the you can't be like, hey, I want to talk about me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know in white people in conversations about identity that's what we're used to yeah <laughs> yeah I mean and also the thing that I like something I wanted to sort of tease out in the identity chapter was you know what does identity even mean mm-hmm. uh in the context one of the contexts I write about it is it's both a very personal self-expression of our own individual experience family history in our bodies, how we move through the world. And then it is also these like really blunt categories that we get slotted into no matter how we express, how we identify, you are identified. Um, And the, what are you into kind of gives, gives the opening for people to sort of navigate how they want to, how they describe themselves in that mm-hmm. universe. You know, I, it, the, the chapter, the, the, what are you into question that's in the chapter is like, um, tell me about your family, you Perfect. know? Yeah. Because yeah. it allows someone, it's not like, where are you from? You know, which is saying, you know, for someone who hears it a lot, it often embedded that is like, obviously you're not from here. Where are you from? You other person, you outsider. Um, it's not like, what's your stock? Could you <laughs> yeah. tell, me, tell me your breed exactly. line? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But tell me about your family. It can, you, there's a lot of ways in. And so you're giving yeah. the other person the ability to like, yes, obviously choose. I'm drawing, I'm drawing yeah, a yeah, difference yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about your family is not, what are you from? 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are you? Yeah. I mean, there's so many <laughs> wrong ways. Um, but it and it's an invitation that, about how to, how to treat you. Yes, exactly. And it, and how to, what it, to like, call you, et cetera. What to call you, what the words you use are for your own identity. And also there's a little space there to like, it acknowledges that, um, parts of our identity are inherited from our family. And also there's room to be like, oh, my family was X, but I tell you, I left that behind and I moved here and this is how I'm different. You know what I mean? You can do, you can also say the ways that you are not like your family, which is an important part of identity as well. And I I think I just want to restate that part about curiosity um, and uh, centering the other person when you start that conversation is that the spirit of what are you into also you are saying I'm at your service (laughs) in a way Uh like and not like in a, you know, uh, uh, servile, like literally servile, but more like I want to I want to do something for like, what can I do? You know, it's an act of humility. It's saying like, this isn't about me, which again, yeah. I think in those, those conversations about identity, we white ladies, especially have a tendency to be like, I am so woke. Can you just look at my wokeness and I want you to see it and I want you to know it and I want you to give me my merit badge. Mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. let me tell you what I know about, mm-hmm. <laughs> about mm-hmm. your experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's what I know. And also, oh, but what can I do? Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's also not a great question. Um, Which is different than what are you into? Yeah. 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 It, what are it's you much- into is sort of saying, it's like, help me see you the way you want to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but in a way that's like, uh, hopefully empowering and not, um, putting labor on their shoulders, you know, like it's instead saying, tell me about this. Tell me, you know, yeah. um, I do think, I do think that there is, I mean, a lot of the book is about listening and centering the other person. I do want to just like wave a flag though, that there are hard conversations sometimes where like, that's not the point. It's, mm-hmm. there are, there are hard conversations where, you are, you know, disclosing to your family something that's going to interrupt the family story, or you are disclosing to a partner some history of trauma. Like that's not that the, the, there are conversations where the primary motivation is speaking up rather than Mm -hmm. listening first. Um, but it's kind of like, um, which side of the circle you're starting on, you know, because I think then Ideally, you get back up to the top of the circle where you're listening, like, okay, I've told you this thing, like, now how, how is that landing for you? And then you go into the listening mode. So you're doing both. Um, I will say it's my experience that even if a conversation is about my disclosing something, it goes a lot better if I can begin with asking the other person their permission yeah, absolutely. Or their uh, buy-in, um, asking what, and sort of what are you into in, in a way, right? Which is that I have to, I need to talk to you about this thing. Are you in a place where you can do that right now? You know, can you listen? Can you, do you think you could hear me out on this right mm-hmm. now? 
Yeah. You know, if you start with the other person, I think you get so much farther. Yeah. Because, and you're also honoring the mode that you're trying to get into with that person. You know, you, you, I think that that's something that like, that's my like first go-to tip for any hard conversation is doing that exact thing you just described, which is to say, I'd like to talk about this now. Is now a good time? Or is there another, you know, just signaling. So the person, even if it makes them feel anxious to know that there's something, there's a hard conversation coming around the bend, you've at least said like, let's, let's go into a different mode together. And if now is not right, let's come back to it, you know, when you fed the kids and bath time's over and you can call me after bedtime, you know, that kind of thing. I think that's exactly right. It's very respectful. And I speak about this particular tactic borrowed from recovery a a fair amount on the show, but I'm going to lay out again because I'm interested in what you have to say about it, Mm -hmm. which is that, so when you're doing amends, you disclose more than you ask actually. Like what you're doing is saying, this is how I harmed you. This is my understanding of how I harmed you. And at the end of it, you need to ask, did I miss anything? Mm-hmm. And I think that gets back to, oh, <laughs> no one can see our expression. <laughs> oh, it's terrifying. Oh, because yeah. also yeah. you think you've done all the work. Mm-hmm. And then to hear, sometimes it's good news, I will say. Mm-hmm. Like I've had the experience of someone telling me, you know what, like this might've been a big deal for you. <laughs> Clearly it was a big deal for you because you remember it better than me. (laughs) But you have to be, you have to be ready, right? To hear something maybe you don't want to hear because as we were talking about in the, when we were discussing family specifically, people change, their needs and wants change, their memories of, of, of what happened are different than yours. Yeah. I mean, I will say, um, it, I, I love that you can bring the perspective of the recovery community because I, I'm not in recovery myself, but the people in my life who are, I like have harvested so much. I just, I, I think that there's so much in this book that I have learned from people who have had that framework, you know, whether it is even just like the little sentences, I love them. I love one of my, my current favorite I learned from Maria Bamford, which is, um, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. I love that one. I also love don't shit all over yourself, which I learned from. <laughs> like, so I think that it's, it, it is such a, um, it's, I, I, what I'm trying to say is there's a lot in my book that others have explored in different frame in, in different contexts that I feel like, uh, yeah. And the recovery community is a big one where people there's, there's been a lot of practicing and trying. How do we talk about hard things? Yeah. I'm just going to go a little further down this road, which is that I think one of the ways that the ideas and attitudes of recovery inform the kinds of work that you want to do or the one you want to have help people do is that um, recovery is about right sizing yourself. Mm-hmm. Not too big, not too small. And that's what these hard conversations also require. Exactly. That's, um, now I have another sentence that I'm going to quote to people. <laughs> <laughs> and Anna Marie Cox told me. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly right because it's about, right size is exactly right. Because it's not, people often ask me about like, oh, but what, 
can you be too empathetic or can you be, can you listen, you know, to where you lose yourself? And it's like, yes, you can. You, this is about that space between where am I doing what is required for me to respect myself while also acknowledging that I need to be open to what someone else is trying to express to me, you know? So it's that space in between. It's having the attitude that you deserve to hear what are you into back? Mm -hmm. That you deserve. You're just having the, just knowing that you deserve that question, not that that person asked it or, you know, whatever, but being able to go in the conversation and when wanting to be of service, that doesn't change. But knowing that you are also worthy of someone wanting to know what you want. Yeah. Which that person may or may not ask ask. yourself. Yeah. I I know. (laughs) They might not ask and you might forget to ask yourself. Right. You know, I, uh, but that gets us to, that gets us to actually the the thing I really wanted to hit on before we say goodbye, um, which is expectations from these conversations. Because going into these conversations, while they need to be full of curiosity and openness, I think at the same time, there has to be an awareness of like, I might, what am I, what do I want? Mm -hmm. What do I want out of this? Now, I don't think it should be too concrete. But even knowing that you, but knowing what you want may help you when you don't get it. Because one of the, my favorite observations in the book is that all these conversations, every single one of them, none of them are about actually like getting to a place where everybody's happy. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it took me a while to learn that myself. Like I, I've always been a practitioner of trying to dig in, but I had this idea that if I did it, I was like doing what one ought to do to problem solve and fix problems. And it was, yeah, it was the end of my first marriage where I was like, oh, wait, what if I do all the work and I still can't get to an agreement or a resolution? What then? Um, And I, I think I didn't, I hadn't really like, uh, it wasn't until I was writing this book more than 10 years after the end of that marriage where I saw like, oh, we didn't not do something. We had a lot of hard conversations and they were sad and hard because we were uncovering that we, our marriage wasn't going to last, you know, um, which was a hard thing to face. So your question was, let me just remember. I think probably did a bad job of actually making it a question. That's really my weakness as an interviewer. Uh, (laughs) No, I I really like talking with you. It's really interesting. Um, I think think it has to do, it had to do with knowing what everyone's going to end up happy. Yeah. Yes. And and, and also being, borrow one more thing is to enter into the conversations with an open hand rather than a closed hand. But there is like a, like, here's what I'm offering. And I kind of want something in exchange but I'm not, I'm not grabbing for it. I'm not going to push you about it. It's just here. Mm, I like that. I mean, and I think that knowing that like question of like, why do I want to have this hard mm-hmm. conversation? By the way, that's a know? much better way to phrase it than like what I want. Thank you. Oh, yes. It's, oh, sure. it's what I want is because what I was thinking about, do I want resolution? Do I want an apology? Do I want to, but why do I want to have this conversation is maybe an even better way to frame it. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, it starts, I think that often the types of conversations we're talking about, they start with the feeling like a gut, like unsettledness, which is like, uh, 
And then you've got to go like, what is that feeling? And then, well, why do I want to have this conversation? Do I want to have this conversation because I'm feeling anxious about this change that I'm noticing and I want the person to tell me it's not happening? Like that could be one of your objectives and then sort of like, oh, let me think about that. Or it could be, um, you know, I'm noticing a sense of distance from this person who matters to me and even disagreement, you know, to go back to the example of, you know, having political differences, real differences in political values with someone in your life, that thinking beforehand, you can, you can think like, do I want to talk to them about this? Because I want them to know that when they take that position, I feel like they are not thinking about what it's like for me to move through the world and that hurts me? Or are you thinking, do you want to have a conversation where you want to acknowledge that you have those differences, but also establish like still it's important to me that we gather together on holidays because I want the kids, the cousins to have a relationship. You know, that's a very different conversation. Um, And when you get, when you spend that time to think about why do I want to have this conversation? Um, it will sort of um, in, kind of reinforce and embolden you with the spirit you want to bring to it. Um, and and then, yeah, as you say, like you can then at the end recognize like, oh, what I wanted, why I started this hard conversation was to feel this, was to establish this between us and this person can't do that with me. And that's new information. It's sad information, but it's new information that I didn't have before. So it was a worthwhile conversation, even if it um, is ends in disagreement or a lack of resolution. What's the last hard conversation you had? <sighs> Let's see. I'm having like variations on a theme of a hard conversation uh, with my husband. And I think it's like it's sort of what's tricky about the car conversation that we're having is we're both um, in our early forties. I turned 40 and he's 41. And so we're both in this process of like encouraging the other to create more healthful boundaries around work and clarity around what we want to get from work and what we're willing to give to work. But the, the reason it's hard is because when we're like trying to be like, you should just, oh, go mountain biking. You should exercise. You know, we're telling each other what we both know we need. So it's like activating this like <laughs> defensive, like we're basically, we're just, it's all projection <laughs> because we're both going through the same thing. So that I feel like that's hard because um, we're, we're really trying to be helpful to the other while also trying to figure out how to, be compassionate to each other and ourselves as we sort of figure out our, that's our version of pandemic reimagining is like, what is, what is our work identity and how does it fit with other parts of our identity? That's like the ongoing hard conversation, which came about unsurprisingly after I finished a book, which took a lot of work. So, so we're just like, huh, that happened in our family. Do we want to do that again? <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me. This has been this has been great. Thank you very much, Anna. I'm really glad to be on your show. I love what you make. And now we turn to adorables. 
This week, we'll be talking to the musician Moby, who does not currently have an animal companion, but has an incredibly robust relationship with a friend's pup, a huge personality trapped in a tiny dog, Candace Bergen Bagel. What is your adorable's name, and how did you come across them? Well, my adorables, I can't lay claim to my adorable because my friend Lindsay is the true parent to the adorable that I want to talk about, which is Bagel. But Lindsay and I work together and we're very good friends. So I see, I get to see Bagel, the adorable, five times a week. Bagel is short because Bagel's full name is Candice Bergen Bagel which I think is a fantastic name. And I can say that with some objectivity because my friend Lindsay decided that her name was Candice Bergen Bagel. What does Bagel look like? Can you describe Bagel for us? Every time I see Bagel, I'm stunned at how tiny she is. We think that she is a cross between the world's smallest chihuahua and the world's smallest terrier. So she's, she's tiny. Every now and then I'll see like, a normal sized dog and be reminded like, oh, bagel is very small. Like (laughs) if she weighs more than five pounds, I'd be surprised. And of course we do believe here with friends like these that all companion animals are emotional support animals. How has bagel supported you? Well, bagel is just a phenomenal everything. Like when I say that, what I mean is, she is not just a phenomenal dog or a phenomenal animal. She's just a phenomenal entity. Uh, <laughs> and she, because she's incredibly smart. Like you can see, I mean, she is so smart, but she's also, whatever she does, she does fully. You know, so when she is enthusiastic, it's like nothing you've ever seen. Like she runs around like a lunatic, just for the sheer joy of running around. When she's playing, she's playing without any reservation. When she's scared of something, she's scared without reservation. When she's thoughtful, thoughtful without hesitation. (laughs) When she so it's like it's it's so inspiring. Like and also just like dogs, I mean their capacity, and I feel like such a cliche saying this, but like their capacity for both giving and engendering true unconditional love. Yeah. Does Bagel have a voice that you could do for us? Bagel has many voices. Her bark is tiny and generic, but I can do one of her, my favorite Bagel voices. Her favorite treat is broccoli stems. She loves chopped up broccoli stems. Like, I don't know who figured this out, but at some point, maybe Lindsay or I handed her a chopped up broccoli stem and she responded like she'd just been given the greatest gift of all time. (laughs) So she loves her chopped up broccoli stems. So if you give her a little chopped up broccoli stem, she makes this voice that's like a proud growl. Okay, come on. So it's kind of like... Like she's like super proud of her broccoli, but she's also pretending to defend her broccoli. And last question. 
if Bagel could support a cause or be a spokes dog for a cause, what cause would it be? If Bagel could be a spokes dog for a cause, wow. I mean, there's so many things I know that she'd be interested in. Um, I think she'd be very politically active. I imagine the cause that would be closest to Bagel's heart would be right now. It's a little, perhaps, statehood for DC. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe there, I mean, there are other, maybe some broader causes, you know, like fighting Republican efforts at state legislatures to like restrict voting access, you know, but I think, I really do think like she believes in fairness and she's just, we've had some conversations about this. She's just horrified at the fact that the residents of D.C. do not have the basic rights afforded to all other American citizens. Well, this was really so fun. I love meeting a fellow, specifically 12-step recovery nerd. Like, that's, like, good stuff. And that is it for the show. Thanks to Moby and to Bagel, as well as Anna Sale. Her book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, is out now. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with Jordan Waller. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Izzy Margulies is our booker. Whitney Pastrick is caring for Wally's wounded paw. Things have slowed down around here for the summer, and it's a welcome break though I've found that having time to think is a kind of mixed blessing. It's been helpful to remind myself of this. Discomfort is what happens when you try to do something new. Discomfort means you're in the middle of an opportunity to take a different route, whether that means taking a different action or maybe choosing not to take action. Don't run from discomfort. Respond to it. And remember, self-care isn't a treatment for discomfort. Regular self-care is what allows us to sit with discomfort when it comes. So, please, take care of yourselves. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.